0: Hey, good morning. good morning. Good to see you this morning. I'm Dan. If this is your first time here, welcome. One of the pastors here, and I love the fact that you're here. And if this is your first time, I'd love for you to go down to the welcome desk at the Grace Cafe and let them know it's your first time. We've got a gift for you. Just our way to say we love you. Uh, let me talk about the elephant in the room. I'm playing hurt today. How's that? All right. So uh, I haven't felt good since Wednesday night. Uh, I came down with something... Something, something. I don't know what it was. I came down with, and I had to leave Discovery early. So if you were at Discovery, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I was getting sick that I left. And uh, then after I left, I was kind of on flat on my back, just kind of resting and all that kind of stuff. And um, did that through yesterday morning. Still was feeling a little rough. And uh, how the story goes is I woke up yesterday because I'd been sick, laying around, and uh, I dropped one of my. Socks, and I reached down to pick up one of my socks, and my back went out. All right, so I wish it was much more impressive than that. I was chopping down a tree or saving somebody, or I don't know, like none of that happened. I was picking up my sock. Okay, what are you laughing at? It's not that funny, you know. So I, I'm feeling pretty puny, but uh, after I picked up my sock and my back went out, uh, I did what you do you uh, I hobbled down to my uh, lazy boy that's what you do when your back hurts and you're getting old right I'm, I'm gonna sit in my lazy boy I don't feel good my back's out I'm just sit here I no longer got sitting in my uh, seated sit it whatever in my lazy boy and uh, my daughter was home this weekend and uh, she had gone to the YMCA and uh, I sat in that lazy boy and my phone rang and it was my daughter And uh, on her way to the YMCA, raise your hand if you drove yesterday morning. Anybody out driving around? It was pure ice where we're at, right? And she said, Dad, I'm stuck on a hill. I need help. I said, I'm stuck in my lazy boy. I need help, right? (laughs) (laughs) We were in a bad way together, but uh, we're going to see uh, what we can get accomplished. There's some things I really, really want to talk to you about today. And so uh, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to call off today. How's that? I wanted to have this conversation. So we're going to see how far we get. Hopefully you have your Bibles. If you don't grab one out of the chairs, turn it to Ephesians chapter five today and lay that in your laps. And then in your program, uh, there should be an outline, uh, that has absolutely nothing on it. And you'll want that because there's some things you're going to want to write down today. Okay. And uh, what I want to share with you, I think, is very, very important. If you uh, haven't been here, we are finishing a conversation. It's been six weeks uh, called Made to Be. And this conversation is about the genders, God's design, His desire for the genders. Here's my hope and desire today. We're going to do our best to get this accomplished. I want to spend half of my time talking to you about things to close the series off that are important for us to talk about. And then I want to spend the second half of our time answering a couple questions that were given to me. I'm not going to answer everybody's questions, Uh, got to ask a lot of questions, but I'm going to answer some questions that I think might be pertinent to kind of stir some conversation. So that's what we're going to do, okay? Um, But in this conversation, we simply are having this conversation because there's a lot of chaos when it comes to this idea of gender and gender identity and all that, a lot of distortion and things like that. It's very culturally relevant. If you haven't been here uh, for the six weeks, uh, I would encourage you to go online and listen. Uh, we have it on our website. I'd encourage you to go online, listen, check it out. But we said this, that because of the chaos and distortion, church needs to simply find its voice in the middle of this, okay? Church has something to say. But I said this, I want to make sure you hear this every week. Church needs to not only find its voice, it needs to find its tone. It needs to find its voice and its tone in the middle of this. So in the middle of this whole conversation, we have identified the fact that our culture, Ready? Our culture, not me, I'm not, some of you have misunderstood me, not me, saying our culture would want to say that this idea of gender is a social construct. In other words, society gets to determine what gender is and what the roles are and identity, all that kind of stuff. And so that's what our culture would want to identify as the determining factor of gender is a social construct. I would suggest to you that instead of it being a social construct, it is a theological construct. It is driven right from the story of creation and redeemed at the cross. This idea of gender is something that's rooted in the creation story is something that you can see right through the cross, and it's something that's redeemed because of the fall, because of the whole story of Jesus at the cross. And so we've been leaning into God and his story and say, okay, what's God have to say about this whole idea of gender? And, and really quick, we've said this, we were created on purpose by a creator. He created us on purpose for purpose, and, and he gave us value. Our value has absolutely nothing to do with our competency, our capacities, that's not where our value comes from. In fact, our value isn't like, like some, some cultures and generations have had our value is placed in your gender, right? It's like, well, we're more valuable because we're men or maybe women, whatever it might be. And, and that's not where our, va- our value comes from. The fact, we have been made in God's image, men and women alike. But what is incredible, and we've leaned into this, is that we have value, equal value, but God, the creator, is this grand designer and he created us different. He created us male and female. Right. So in his grand design, he decided to create us differently as a male and as a female. And So we've leaned in that said, are those differences just biological and anatomical or is it something bigger than that something more going on? And we looked at men and we said this, that when you look back at the creation story, tease it through the cross, men were made to be responsible caretakers. Does that mean women aren't supposed to be responsible? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the primary role that men were made to be responsible caretakers. Not only that, they were made to, to be sacrificial leaders. We looked at that in the story of Adam. We looked at that through the, through the cross and through some of the things in the New Testament. And then beyond that, they were made to be spiritual guardians. Adam let down his guard, right? So we looked at that. Then we looked at women and said, okay, then, then what did God make women to be? And we said women were made to be necessary helpers. And we made sure we understood that word. That that word helper is not an inferior term. That it's used twenty-one times in the Old Testament, 16 times to refer to God. Unless we're saying God's inferior, that word helper must not be an inferior term. But, but but women were created to be necessary helpers for what God entrusted to men to be responsible caretakers of. Not only that, they're made to be unique compliments. Compliments with a knee, not an eye, we said, right? And then beyond that, they were made to be partnering companions. And so we talked about that. We teased it out. I encourage you to go online, check it out. Leads to where I want to go today. There's some very, very important things I want to talk about today. So you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 5. And ironically enough, I don't want you to look there right away. I want you to look at the screen because we're going to start in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, here's what it says. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. We talked about that. Those two words suitable and helper are important and key. In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. I think what you have going on here is she was not like the other animals. She was like him, yet different. Like him, yet different. Suitable means different, opposite then. So she was not like one of the animals. She was like him, yet different. He realized she's human, but she's different. Then the key verse I want to look at today, verse 24, that, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Here's what I want to talk about. God made two distinct and different genders, and in his ultimate wisdom, he designed that those two distinct and different genders would come together into this mysterious one. Two different distinct genders come together into this mysterious one called marriage. Called marriage. Now, here's what's interesting. We, We have said that in our culture, gender is a social construct. I'm not saying that's the right thing, but, but our society has determined, well, gender is whatever society determines this. Here's what's, here's what's ironic yet sad that in much the same way, not only is gender a social construct, but our culture has made marriage a social construct that marriage is whatever society determines it is. And yet I would suggest to you that marriage is not simply a social construct. Marriage is a theological construct. If I believe I was created by a creator in his image for a purpose, right? And so marriage is a theological construct. In fact, I would state it this way, that marriage is the God-ordained union of one man to one woman in a lifetime covenant promise. That's marriage. If you tease it back into creation, it is a lifetime covenant promise. One man, one woman. And so it is a theological construct. It's not simply a society-driven construct. It begs a couple questions. We need to go here this morning. It begs a question that if marriage is this idea that God designed, then why don't more work? Because if we're just going to be honest, we, if, just be honest about this whole idea of marriage, 50% don't work. And maybe, maybe you're in one that's like, man, I, maybe you've been through a divorce, whatever, and, and here's, here's I'm, you can testify to this, like, I don't know, what's going on? Like, why doesn't marriage work? 50% of them don't work. The truth is 50% of the ones that do aren't happy. So 50% don't work, and 50% of the ones that do work aren't happy, and it's like, what's going on here? And I would suggest to you this idea of gender, that for some people, their gender hostility and their gender, their, their frustration, sometimes comes out of their experience in marriage. Oh, I was married to a man, and he was a tyrant, so all men are fill in the blank. Or I was married to a woman, and she was fill in the blank, now all women are fill in the blank. And so there are some people, their whole frustration with this gender conversation comes from their experience in marriage, whether their own marriage or maybe their mom and dad's marriage or marriage of friends or whatever it might be. And so when you look at it, you just got to be honest. You can't, you can't live in this Pollyannish world and say, oh, marriage is in church and Christians are better. No, it's not. Marriages don't work and 50% that do work aren't happy. What's the problem? I would suggest the problem is in the picture, that we have the wrong picture of marriage Bear with me. I'm not an artist, but I want to draw. Can we just pretend we're in my office? I'm not going to preach to you. I'm just going to coach you. Can we do that? Just shake your head. Yeah, it makes you feel better, right? I'm not feeling good. I need a little more participation. I'm just saying. Thank you, whoever said yes up front. I was going to do it anyways, but I'm just saying. Here's the way we look at marriage. Can you tell which one's the boy, which one's the girl? There you go. I am a good artist. How do you like that? Marriage we see is this bond where two people are going to run through life together. It's kind of like we hold this rope and we're going to run through life together, right? And that's marriage. And we're going to experience all this bliss and wonderful happiness together. The problem is in our culture, when this is the picture of marriage, there's a problem. We're all selfish. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're selfish. Go ahead and turn and do it. I double-dog dare you. Go ahead and say it. Yeah. Those of you who don't, you're selfish, Right? We're all selfish, right? I mean, all of us are. i just tell you this. The truth of the matter is I didn't realize how selfish I was till I got married. Honest to goodness. Marriage has a way of revealing that to you. We're all selfish. And so when you put two people together and you're selfish, and I'd say this, when a man and a woman come together, can I say this? That they are different. Men are different than women. Women are different than men. Can I get somebody married in the room and say amen to that? Anybody? Yeah, we're different, right? Uh, we've talked about that. We're very different. So here's the fact of the matter. When this is my picture of marriage, we're just going to hold the rope of marriage together, run into life together. Problem is, there's a lot of times she wants to go this way, he wants to go this way. And sometimes it becomes just a, just, just a big grief to be able to say, I want to go this way. And all of a sudden, marriage becomes a tug of war. Marriage wasn't meant to be a war. It was meant to be worship. And so what happens a lot of times in marriage, instead of spending time saying, I want to go this way, this way, let's just split ways. And that's what happens in 50%. And the reason for that is because we've got the wrong picture. And so when when you get to the New Testament, you see God changes the picture. And the picture that he gives us of marriage starts with this. I want everybody to see this verse, Ephesians 5, 21. Can we throw that up there? I want you to read it out loud with me. Everybody nice and loud together submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's where marriage begins in God's eyes. The picture of marriage is under the umbrella of submitting to one another. That's God's picture of marriage. And then he goes on and he says this in Ephesians 5. He says, okay, under that umbrella, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. We're going to get to that. For the husband is the head of the wife. I want to explain that here in a second. As Christ is the head of the church, key part of the equation. His body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her, can we go to the next slide? There you go. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. And then he goes on and says, we're all members of his body. This is key stuff. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united. That sounds like Genesis 2. Be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, and we're going to get to this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. What's going on here, I think, in simple, and I share this with tons of people who come into my office. Some of you have seen this because you've been in my office. If you ever, uh, if I ever talk to you before you get married, you're gonna see this picture. But I wanna share it with all of you. In fact, you all ought to write it down even if you're like, hey, I'm never thinking of getting married. Well, you might meet somebody who's thinking of getting married and so I'd share it with them. But this is God's picture of marriage. His picture of marriage is different than our picture of marriage. It's all under this idea of submitting to one another. And he starts his picture of marriage and he says, hey, husbands, I want you to know something. I want you to be the head. What does that mean? I want you to lead. But, but, but he doesn't leave it there. I think Ephesians 5 is harder on the guys than it is the gals, to be honest with you. If you really look at it. He says, I want you to lead just as Jesus leads the church. Well, how does Jesus lead the church? Let me give you some words. I'm writing the word serve. He serves. Matthew 20, 28, if you want to write some Bible passages beside this, it might be good. He says this, that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. That's interesting, isn't it? Not only that, but Jesus sacrificially loves the church. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus gave his very life for the church, laid down his life for the church. Beyond that, it uses this word sanctify, okay? Okay that he sanctifies the church. Like, what's that mean? Like, if you didn't grow up in church, like, I don't know what that word means. Here's what I would write beside that. He makes it his business to make the church beautiful inside and out, right? What is God's picture of marriage? He says, if you're going to be a husband, I want you to be the head. That means it's not tug of war. It's not grab a rope and go. You're going to be the leader. Yay me, right? No, I want you to understand what that means. Just as Christ does church, I want you to leverage your life for the sake of, Of your wife. I want you to bend your life for the sake of your wife. I want you to do whatever it takes to bend your life, to lift her up, to serve her, to sacrificially love her. I want you to be a responsible caretaker. Let's throw that slide up there, the the whole slide, the, the next slide. They don't need to see me. Yeah, there you go. I want you to be a responsible caretaker, a sacrificial leader, a spiritual guardian for your wife. And God says, here's what I created her to be, a helper, Basically, what God says, this is worth writing down men, husbands, I want you to lead like Jesus. Women, I want you to be a helper like God. Men lead like Jesus, women help like God. Men lead like Jesus. Tell me who's inferior in that. You see, we got the wrong conversation going. We got the wrong conversation going. He says, women, what I want you to do is out of this mutual submission, I want you to recognize I created you for a reason. I want you to bend your life for the sake of your husband. Mutual submission. I want husbands to lead sacrificially. I want necessary helpers, those who are women, to use their strength, to bolster their weaknesses, to build them up, to encourage them. I want you to help. I want you to lead. I want there to be mutual submission. This is what marriage looks like. And I want you to keep doing that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And here's what happens. As you do that, it might begin to look like what God's dream of marriage is, it's the first letter in what his dream of marriage is. to become, what is it? One. To become one. And So what's interesting to me is when you look at this, it not only is the first letter in the word one, but it also looks like something that might show up on your finger to represent that you have entered into this covenant called marriage. Right? You see, that's God's picture of marriage. This is how a covenant is formed. This is how two... Become one. The only way they'll ever become one is if they bend their life, mutual submission to each other. You See how that works? It's fascinating that he has this picture. It tells me certain things about marriage. I want you to write these down. Particularly, particularly, everybody ought to write them down. Particularly if you're in here, like we're thinking about getting married or I want to be married someday. I really want you to write this down. It tells me this. Marriage is first and foremost a lifetime promise into an unknown future. That's what a covenant is. Marriage is a lifetime promise into an unknown future. It's so important. So so here's what I tell young couples. The vows they exchange on their wedding day is not a declaration about how they feel about each other on that day. That's not what they are. Everybody's in love on their wedding day, right? I love you. That's not what your vows are, right? Your vows are a promise. Your vows are a promise. They are a promise to each other into an unknown, unpredictable future. Those of you married in the room, did you have any idea what the future was going to bring when you said, I do, on the day of your wedding? Yes or no? No. They were like, am I allowed to answer out loud? No. Like, none of us. I've been married 29 years. Had no idea. Right? And so marriage is this promise into a future we can't predict. Here's what marriage is. Okay, I share this a lot of times in in wedding ceremonies. Not all, but uh, but a lot. These are just things I share. Marriage is this. I promise to love you enough to close off all the other options. Marriage is saying yes to my wife. I say no to all others. The day we got married, November fourth, nineteen eighty-nine, I said yes, Jennifer, and everybody else gets a no. Right? I'm going to keep myself to and for you alone. That's what that's what marriage is. Promise, lifetime. Right? Marriage is a promise to love you enough. I'm going to rearrange my life for you. Okay. I meet with lots of couples and guys in particular. yeah, when I get married, I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep doing what I do. It's like, I, I tell don't get married, <laughs> like, like, or set an appointment up in advance with me. I don't know. Like, it won't go well. Nor should it go well, by the way. I married Jennifer. My life changed. Like, my life changed. I re- my, there's, her, trust me, her life changed. Like We rearranged our life for each other. That's what marriage is. I promise I'm going to do it. Marriage is a promise to keep my appointment with you in an unpredictable future. When I said yes to Jennifer on November 4th, 1989, I was saying, yes, you can pencil me in to a future that I have no idea what it's going to to be. I had no idea in a few years she was going to lose her father. I had no idea our first pregnancy wasn't going going to ever see life. I had no idea that I was going to lose my job. I had no idea fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. I had no idea. She had no idea that this guy who was an optimist when she married him was going to go through a season of depression where she didn't even know him. And yet when she said yes to me on that day, you know what? She said, she said yes, I'll be there. It's going, to be, it's going to be scary, but I'm going to be there. You see what I'm saying? That's what she said yes to. Not only that, when she said yes to me and I said yes to her, it's this promise that I'll stay and work it out instead of running out. That's what a covenant is. Let's throw those two verses up there. Malachi 2, let's throw them both. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Malachi 2 talks about this marriage covenant. You see it at the very end there. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Look at what Jesus said. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Pretty sure I'm right on this. I think it was Andy Stanley said this. Uh, If he didn't, I apologize. But I think he said it this way. What God has made one, let no one undone. Like you can't undo what God makes one. You just can't undo it. That's, that's what he's saying. It's like it's a covenant. It's a promise. Okay, now, now let's make sense of this. Okay? Some of you are like, okay. Because some of you grew up in church and, and here's what you heard. Okay, marriage is for life and that's one of God's rules. No, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. Is it possible that God loves you and knows something that you don't know, that maybe I don't know or we don't acknowledge, that maybe he wants what's best for us? That maybe what he knows is this. It's the security of the promise that leads to intimacy. Let me show you something Tim Keller says, and then I want to show you how this plays out here. I love this. See if you can't relate with this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Everybody look here. Like if you say, I love you, but you don't know anything about me. You know what? I'm going to live the rest of my life afraid you're going to find out all the warts about me. And then you're not going to love me. Like, you love what you think you know about me, but, but do you really love me? It, like, so if you said, I love you, brother, but you don't know me, it's like, thanks. But then he goes on to say this, to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. If somebody really knows you and then they reject you, that's everybody's fear. To be known and, right? That's our greatest fear. But then he goes on to say this, but to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. What's the point? The point is this, that it is the power of the promise, whoops, wrong end, the power of the promise that brings security and it's only in the context of security that I can enjoy fully intimacy. You ought to write that in your picture. Intimacy is enjoyed and explodes in the context of security, which comes with the promise of the covenant. This is so important. So important. See, here's the deal. I said, I've said this both other services, I'll say it now, and that's this. There are lots of people, there are lots of people who have sex. Not as many enjoy intimacy intimacy. I'll even say this there's married folks that have sex, but but don't necessarily enjoy into me see. Intimacy. Physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy, spiritual intimacy, into me see. See, it's different, right? That's what intimacy is into me see. And so he's saying it's in the context and the power of the promise that we enjoy that intimacy. I don't have to perform in, in that context. I have, the, I have the freedom to be transparent, which, which leads to this next one. It's this. I want you to write this down. Marriage is this unique friendship that has exclusive benefits. Marriage is a friendship. Paul uses words in Ephesians 5 that would have been foreign to, his, to his, the people listening to what he wrote. M- women in their culture, was, they were property. I'm not saying it was a good thing, it was a right thing. So what Paul is writing would have been foreign to them. What? Submit to one another. What are you talking about? You know. And so for them, marriage would have been this business transaction. It was just a transaction. And what Paul is saying, no, no, marriage is a friendship that that is mutual submission. It's like, say what? He's saying that marriage is this unique, unusual, special friendship where two people are headed in the common direction and they commit to mutually submitting to each other. It is a unique friendship and it has exclusive benefits. Here's why this is important. In a world that's painting an extremely negative picture about marriage, God elevates marriage. He says there is treasure, there's beauty in this whole thing of marriage. What are some of the benefits, right? I want you to write these down. Just a couple benefits. First is there's this special oneness. Marriage is not just simply a legal transaction, is that, but it's not simply a business transaction. It's not not a tax status. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is a spiritual event where God literally takes two people, different genders, and profoundly, secretly, somehow, Ephesians 5 says, mysteriously, he makes them one. Marriage, there's this opportunity to experience a God-ordained oneness. Not only that, Marriage is a unique commitment to the process of who God is making my spouse to be. I want you to write that down. It's a commitment to the process of who God is making my spouse to be. In marriage, we share this this friendship that sees what God is doing in the other person. Let Let me state it this way. There is no one in this building, in this world, there is no one in this world who knows my faults, my foibles, and my flaws. Like a woman named Jennifer that I've been married to for 29 years. She knows everything a matter with me. She knows all my shortcuts. She knows everything. She knows, trust me, tr- ask her. Well, She won't tell you, I can tell you that. But, but she knows, as, as recent as yesterday... Like, like there was a moment yesterday when I was an absolute idiot to my wife. Anybody ever done that before? I was an idiot because when I get sick, I get cranky. Raise your hand if you get cranky when you get sick. I do not like to be sick. I do not. I like to go do what I like to do when I want to do it. It makes me mad. I'm mad right now, but I am gonna get over it in a second. Right. And, and she got the worst of it. Right. She got the worst of it. And so she she sees stuff. Trust me, guys. I mean, do not fantasize Jennifer and I's life. I say that to you. Don't do that. Like, we are, we put our shoes on just like you. I mean, she saw the worst of me. She sees the worst of me. But listen, listen, listen. Okay, now this, I shared this last, this could make me emotional if I think about it too long. There is no one more committed to me in the process of who God is making me to be than that woman. Guaranteed. See, that's, that's what marriage is. I'm committed to the process. I like what Keller says. He says, Most people, when they're looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. Amen? Yeah, that's worth writing down. Some of y'all aren't married. I'd write that down. Put that somewhere, you know? I mean, we, we spend our time, I got to find the perfect spouse. It's like, yeah, why don't you find one that has committed themselves to the process of allowing God to make them who he wants them to be and then commit to them. Because if you're looking for the perfect spouse, that's an expectation that's gonna lead you to a disappointment somewhere because their faults and their foibles will show up soon enough. So it's a special one that's committed to the process of who God's making them to be. And let me say this for the sake of time, it's expressed, it's expressed in sexual intimacy. Hebrews 13, four says this, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. The unique friendship of marriage expresses itself in sexual intimacy. It's the sexual relationship between a man and a woman and it is meant to be this beautiful demonstration of the covenant vow before God and their spiritual transparency and love for each other. That's what it is a demonstration of. I would state it this way. God designed sexual intimacy to be the expression of the covenant commitment and the promise between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage and and marriage alone. I already know what I said is not necessarily what is culturally correct. I get it. I understand that. But remember, marriage is not a social construct. Gender is not a social theological construct god designed this whole idea of sex and intimacy okay so i'm just saying And so if i want to experience what he designed it for it is designed in the context of this covenant promise where intimacy happens in sex god gives husbands and wives this this beautiful opportunity to come together in the most intimate of ways to communicate their oneness This unique friendship has exclusive benefits, at least the last thing. Marriage also is a powerful partnership with God-given purposes. Let me, for the sake of time, just state them really quick. You can go back to creation and see that God's purpose was this. He looked at Adam. He says, I want you to go fill the earth with a bunch of little atoms. And do you think he could do that alone? Could he do it alone? Yes or no? No, he needed some help, right? And so, basically, it's this partnership to fulfill God's pr- our purpose for their life. And marriage is a partnership not just simply to go make babies, but to raise families. You read throughout Scripture, it's not just to make babies, right? It's to raise families, to love them, to instruct them, to coach them, train them, and release them as adults. That's not the only purpose. I would say Ephesians 5 says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church that marriage in the way marriage interacts is to be this profound picture of the gospel, of the relationship Christ has with the church. Those of you in the room who have kids still living in your home, let me just tell you this and then I'm going to roll on. There is no more powerful opportunity, i say it again, if you have kids in, the, in your home or going to someday have kids in your home, no more powerful opportunity for your kids to see the gospel painted in front of them than they have in watching your relationship with your spouse. You can read every Bible book to them. You can show them the Jesus movie. You can do, bring them to church. No more powerful opportunity that they'll have to see the gospel played out than how you guys relate with each other. Because they get to see you forgive the other when they don't deserve it. That's kind of like God did for us. They get to see you serve the other when they don't deserve it. Kind of like God did for us. And so your kids get to see the gospel play out. You see, what what God did in marriage was he took two distinct genders and he brought them together into this mysterious one. An incredible, beautiful design that he had. Leads to several questions and then we're done. Leads to several questions. First is this. Okay, so I'm just going to answer some questions that I received by way of email or connection card or whatever it might be. One question that I think is appropriate for us to start with since I'm talking about marriage I think it's a very appropriate question, Pastor Dan. What if I'm single? Does that mean I'm incomplete? Does that mean I'm incomplete? 1 Corinthians 7, 7, once you write it down, Paul is talking, single, single guy, and he said, I wish that you all were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has that. And If you read what Paul is saying there, stay with me on this. Paul is saying that singleness is a gift, just like marriage is a gift. I'm not sure he's saying some are gifted to be. I'm just saying it's a gift. Some have it for life. Some have it for a season in life. And the purpose for what he's saying is embrace whatever gift you have right now. So you're like, which gift do I have? Well, if you're single, that's the gift you have. (laughs) If you're married, that's the gift you have. And he's saying embrace the gift. Single folks are equally made in the image of God. You're not incomplete. In fact, there are advantages. First Corinthians seven says to being single. Can I list a couple? If you are single, if you are single, you do not have to navigate the troubles that come with marriage. All the married folks in the room, is there troubles that sometimes come with marriage? Yes or no? Yeah, those of you who didn't answer, are lying or afraid or something, right? There are. Come on, let's just be honest. And so, single folks. Don't have to navigate that. You're like, well, that doesn't make me feel better. Paul also says this. Single folks have more margin to, to be able to, without distraction, wholeheartedly pour themselves into the work of the Lord. That's what he says. When you get married and all of a sudden have kids. I mean, I'm, I've been a pastor for 20-some years, and I have kids and a, and a wife, and, and, and you, you can feel pulled in so many directions. When you're single, it's like, well, I can have a, a singular focus. I can choose to have a singular focus, I might should say. So he's simply saying that. He's saying, well, man, I don't know if I like this gift. It's What's interesting is this. I have tons of people come in my office, and I'll have single people come in and say, I just can't wait to get married. Everything's going to be better when I'm married. Right? You tracking with me? And it's like, well, there, there are worse things than being single. I'll always say that to them. I mean, there's advantages to being single, and there's also worse things. And They're like, what's that? Well, you could be married miserable right now, right? I mean, if you just go out and marry anybody, chances are you'll be back in here in a couple years, and we'll be talking, right? I'll have married folks come in. If I was just single again, you know, like we're never satisfied, right? And Paul's saying embrace whatever the gift is. For you single folks, and let me tell you a couple of things. As long as you're single, really lean in on this, okay? I see some young adults that hang out with me on Sunday nights. Lean in on this, okay? As long as you are single, I want to tell you this, run into, I'm going to say it like this, run into the satisfaction that you can only find in Jesus. John 4, write that down, John 4. Jesus is talking to a woman, she's married five times with a guy she wasn't married to. Jesus said, you're expecting men to satisfy in you something I can only satisfy in you. The reason I tell you single folks this, run into Jesus and what he can satisfy in you, because if and when you meet somebody, you don't want to meet them thirsty. You want to meet them satisfied. I meet people all the time that meet people thirsty and they expect them to meet their need. He's going to meet my need, my every longing. And that's an expectation that will lead to a premeditated disappointment. Your husband or your wife will never satisfy and meet the needs in you that only Jesus can meet. So if you're single, I would run into the satisfaction that you're going to need even if you end up getting married. So that when you meet that person, you don't meet them thirsty, you meet them satisfied, and then you'll be more prone to be able to give from the overflow of what's going on inside of you. Next, I would say this: lean into your church family. That's why we have a young adults group. We have a, we have a singles group that's meeting right now of, of people who are beyond our young adult age. It's not a dating club. It is not a dating club. It's just people that are in that season of life. And then, single people, I see some of you in the room, so I want to say this: here's my advice to you: don't sit around and wait. I meet gals, and say, I'm sitting around and wait for the guy to come along and whatever. Don't, don't do that. I'd get up and go. That's why I love in the, in the, the youngest gal in the video we did the last two weeks uh, was single. Her name's Holly. And she'd probably be embarrassed if she knew I was talking about her right now. She's quiet. You know, she couldn't get a word in edgewise, right? But, but that girl ain't sitting around waiting. I love Holly. Hallie is discipling high school students, she's discipling young adults, she's pouring herself in, she's one of our head ushers on Sunday night, I mean she's, whew, man I'm going to devote myself to the Lord I love, I'm not sitting around waiting, and if, I bet she'd love some young guy to come along and see, man that is a quality gal, right, and I'm not making a pitch for Hallie, but, that's a, but, but until then she's like, I'm going to follow Jesus, that's where my satisfaction's at, right, I love that about Hallie, and she's not the only one, many others, right. I lead with some, I lead the young adult group. There's single young guys in there Ben, Ethan, Brandon. These guys are just like, we're moving. We're moving out. We're going we're to devote ourselves to serving Jesus. And, and if God wants to bring somebody along, then, then let it be on that path. At least this question What if my marriage doesn't look like that? It looks more like I'm miserable and married. I got asked this, not in writing, but somebody came up and asked me this. Here's what I would say. God has an ideal. What is real is very rarely his ideal. Stay with me on this. What is real is very rarely his ideal. So what do I do if my real isn't his ideal? Well, when my real isn't his ideal, I never give up on the ideal while I continue to heal from what's real. It's not like, well, that doesn't matter. I'm going to put that away and just, right? It's like God has this ideal. It's led some people to say, well, I'm married to somebody that's not a Christian. What do I do? I'm coming and listening to this. Some of you gals are here without your husbands. And I will tell you, you're some of my heroes. Like, I, I mean that. I love, I see some of you coming. I know it's not easy all the time. So I'm not using that word lightly. 1 Peter 3 is the passage you need to write down. What do I do if my, my spouse is not a believer? whether husband or wife. It's written to wives married to unbelieving husbands. Here's what Peter says. The whole book of First Peter is this. Live your life in, in a way that your commitment to Christ raises questions in your husband or your wife if they're not a believer that they ought to be asking. Don't beat Jesus into them. That's what he's saying. Don't nag Jesus into them. It, it very, I've never seen it work. I, mean, I imagine there's exceptions. There's exceptions. I had a gal in Indiana, she came to my house, she said, I keep telling my husband he needs to come to church, he needs Jesus, he needs Jesus. I keep telling him, every day I tell him, I said, how's it working? She said, it's not. I said, stop, it's not working, it's, it won't work. I said, why don't you start loving him and showing him that you love Jesus? She said, well, that's different. I said, yeah. Just start loving him and showing him that the grace that Jesus showed you. And she started doing that, and all of a sudden he showed up to church. Second time at church, I said, hey, bud, you want to go get coffee? Sure. I said, what do you believe about Jesus? He said, I don't believe in God. He said, but I'm interested in the Bible. I said, that's cool. I am too. I said, you want to read it together? Sure. He said, but I got lots of questions. I said, great. I don't have all the answers. We start meeting together. She said, what are you guys talking about? I said, it's none of your business right now, you know? (laughs) Just love him, right? I'll make a long story short. Next thing I know, in ways that we could have never orchestrated, that man said yes to Jesus, and he became the worship leader of the church where I was pastor, one of my best friends. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I know. Some of you guys, I know it's hard sometimes. I know it's just hard because it's like, wow, it would be easier if I, like, this is harder because I get it. And that's where I think Jesus said, hey, I, I become, I come along when the ideal's not there, my grace abounds. Where you're weak I'm strong some some have asked me this well my husband's not a leader or my, or, or men have said what if my wife's not a great helper <laughs> like they're not doing their job is what they're basically saying to me okay here's what I would say a couple words first is write this word down somewhere on your outline introspect first Matthew 7 Jesus said this make sure you look inside yourself before you look at them It's a lot easier for me to pick out the speck in your eye than it is for me to see the log in my own eye. That's what he's saying. So I can sit and say, my husband's not, my husband's not. And the first thing I would say, sounds mean, but I would look inside and say, hey, I wonder what's going on inside of me. That's Jesus, not me. The second thing I would say is this, and this is worth writing down. Respond to them from the gospel. Don't react to what they're doing wrong. Respond from the grace you've received. Don't react to their deficiency. Sometimes what we do is we focus on they should be and they're not. And if we respond to the grace that God has shown us in the gospel, we'll respond different. Well, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Yep. Neither did you. And yet, they're hung Jesus. See how that works? It creates a different response. I have people that will come to me and say... uh, you know, I'm not married yet, but I'm dating an unbeliever. I'm not married yet, but I'm dating an unbeliever. I'm engaged, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and they're not. Okay, I'm going to give you my opinion. I'm going to shoot straight with you. Okay? But, but, man, I love the young adults I get to hang out with. I would say, break it off. Like, I, I don't want to mumble, I would say, break it off. I would say that from experience. I'd, so if you could come and listen to the stories in my office, I have people that say, I wish somebody had told me that before. Uh, basically, God says it's like taking two y- oxen that are supposed to kind of plow this, this ground right here. And so you yoke them together. He, he says that's kind of what it's like. And if I take an unbeliever and yoke it to a believer, I'm taking two oxen that are heading in different directions, and we can't make any headway. We just go whoosh, like this. So here's what I would say. Listen, I don't want to mumble. Some of you in the room say, I'm married to an unbeliever. What should I do? Live out Jesus in front of them. Some of you in the room are saying, I'm dating an unbeliever. What should I do? I would say, break off the relationship. Probably get an email on that one. I get asked this question. Um, Getting married... I think this is from a gal. We answered this in young adults, too. Does that mean I am no longer allowed to be independent? depends on what you mean by independent. If what you mean by independent is I don't want anyone else that I have to arrange my life around, I don't want to have to serve anybody, I don't want my life tied up with somebody else's life, listen, don't get married, honestly, like, don't get married. Marriage is mutual submission. My life is tied in with Jennifer. Her life is tied in with me. We we are interdependent, I guess you'd say. So like if you're like, I'm going to give up that independence, if that's what you mean. If what you mean by independent is this. I want to be a strong, robust person who's able to think for myself. And I have strong gifts and talents that I want to exercise. I say, go for it. And I want to talk to the gals in particular. If you're like a strong person, a Somebody who has a robust mind, a strong thinker that God has gifted. And you find, I, I talk to gals, and like, I think that intimidate Guys, listen to me, what I'm going to say. This is what gals tell me. I think that intimidates some guys. And so I want to back off in my pursuit and my passion because I don't want to intimidate guys. Don't you dare. If, if that is the very thing that God needs to use in a guy's life to get that old boy going, then let it be. But but don't you dare pull back. I raised my daughter to be strong, a a robust thinker. I want her to pursue Jesus with a passion. I'd love for her to meet a guy that has the same passion. But here's the deal if she meets guys that are intimidated by that or frustrated by that, so be it. Get asked this question What if. My wife has more earning capacity than I do, and I'm supposed to be the responsible caretaker. Well, if your wife has more earning capacity than you do, yay you, is what I would say. Like, that's awesome. Like, like what we've talked about has nothing to do with dollars and cents and the career. that, like, And it does not absolve you from being a responsible caretaker as a husband, if, if this is a husband writing this. Like, it doesn't matter who makes more money. Like, that, that's not the issue. The issue is, am I a responsible caretaker for what's been entrusted to me? Okay, it's not a competition, it's a cooperation. See how that works? Uh, somebody asked this question, well, my wife's a much more mature Christian than me, and I'm supposed to be a spiritual guardian. Yeah, and if I'm, a, if I'm going to be the spiritual guardian, I'm going to recognize she's got things to offer our family that I want to make sure that I put into play. Right? I mean, it, it's not a competition. It's a cooperation. Here's where the problem gets when guys look at their wives who are very talented and gifted, when, when gals feel like they've got a cower in that, well, I want to make sure, I want to make him feel like he's, you know, like that. Or when, when guys say, hey, I'll let her do it, that's where we get into trouble. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's a cooperation. It's like together we help each other. You get asked this, and I'll be quick about this. Wow. Um, but I need, I need to answer this. We aren't married, but we are living together. Because it is convenient financially, is that okay? I would... I would say this first. So I've met with couples in this situation, and this, I'll get a lot of things from them. Uh, if you're a couple that's dating each other and living together, and you, you come into my office and say, but we're not having sex. I'm like, you, you're a better man than me. Like, really? <laughs> like, can we just be real? Okay. So what I would say is this, is your convenience more important than your purity and your holiness? That's all I'd say. You see how we elevated convenience above, I trust God and I want to pursue purity and holiness? See, let me just tell you this, let me erase something that our culture has sold us. Following Jesus is not always convenient. Following Jesus doesn't always lead to your best life now. I'm not picking on a book title or something. I'm just saying it doesn't always lead to that. Sometimes it's like it's the harder route. Sometimes it's the most inconvenient route. And he says, I want you to come this route. I've had couples come into my office that are living together and that as a result surrendered their life to Jesus. And they are a beautiful picture of what God can do when they say we want to surrender. We want to to do it that way. I know, it's, I, guys, I know what I'm saying is not culturally popular. I know some of you would have a different opinion. I'm simply saying that when I look at what God's design is, He's, he's, he's clear and He's a beautiful designer. So then I've got to get these two and then have got to be done. Pastor Dan, are you saying transgenderism is sin in the, in the series? Well, we got to distinguish some terms here can we distinguish between those who struggle with gender dysphoria and those who identify as transgender that's different you're like it is well i've never heard of that term over here okay so let me let me define some terms gender dysphoria is simply the technical word that describes the struggle somebody feels when their biology doesn't match what they experience or feel. So, for instance, you know, I've met with young men. They're like, biologically, anatomically, I'm a guy. And yet, the things I like to do are more associated in our culture with women. Or I feel like inside more like I... A gal, and so there's this struggle that goes on. They're like, I'm struggling. I don't like to do all those stereotypes we threw up. I'm not that guy, you know, or I'm not the guy my dad thought I should be. And so there's a struggle. It's gender dysphoria. It's important. It's a struggle. Transgenderism is the umbrella term that identifies where somebody identifies with the gender that is not their biological sex. That's the guy who is anatomically, biologically a male says, I'm a woman. Hey, I'm not. I'm not a man. That's who I am. And so, Dan, what are you saying? Listen close. I don't want to mumble. Gender dysphoria is that a sin? Hope not. I hope not, because this room is full of people who are struggling with all kinds of things. Is, is, is struggling with things a sin? I hope not. A place would empty. Some of the people I admire the most are people who come into my office, like I'm struggling with and I'm wrestling with and I'm trying to get my head around. Listen, man, you struggle into God all day long, struggle into truth. Transgenderism, on the other hand, where I am biologically a male or female, whatever, and I identify as the opposite, is turning my back on God's design. And I would say unequivocally, yes. It is a sin just like homosexuality, adultery, sex outside of marriage, stay with me, lying, cheating, self-righteous hypocrisy and gossip. Did I cover it okay? God God's not grading sin. Why why do we do that? Like we can grade it, right? we can be okay with our gossip we can be okay with our slander but you know them people and listen to me we can tend to even it, we can tend to dehumanize people why jesus nowhere does that so i have people come and say well i'm struggling because I think I was born this way. I was born biologically a male, but I think I was born inside as a woman. And I just have this, th- that I identify. And so I was just born this way. Or, or I've had people come and, you know, I was born with these same-sex attractions. And so, Pastor Dan, I was just born that way. So the fact that I was born this way, feeling this way, I'm just going to struggle away from God's design. Listen, listen. Here's what I would say. You already know that's not a good reason to struggle away from God's design. You're sitting there like, I do? You do. If I hypothetically said to you this, I was born, I'm not saying this is true, but if I said this, and I do this in my office for shock value, I was born with a desire to have sex with lots of women. Would you say to me, well, you were born that way. Why don't you go ahead and just give in to the way you were born? Would you tell me to give in to my natural, would you, no. If I told you I was just born with a love for alcohol, even to the point of drunkenness, so I was just born that way, so I think I'll just go get blasted. Would you tell me, yeah, you were kind of born that way. Would you tell me to just go get drunk every night? I hope not. You wouldn't be a very good friend. You see, here's what I know. I know that when it comes to this idea, I feel actually for people who are in this boat. Okay? Because the the struggle is real. And I think it comes down to three words. I want you to write them down. First is authority. Authority. Who has the right to tell me what to do? All of us look to someone or some, some of us, it's us. But who has the right to tell me what to do? Don't just look for who agrees with you. Look for who has authority over you. Second word, knowledge. Who knows what's best for me to do? Who knows what's best for me to do? And the third word is trust. Who loves me and wants what's best for me? In the story of God, there is a God who loves me enough that he died for me. His death shows me how much he loves me. He wants what's best for me. He knows more than me. Therefore, he has authority in my life. Proverbs 14 says there's a way that appears right. Many times leads to death. Those of you in the room who may be struggling with gender dysphoria, I am so glad you're here. Some of you are struggling with same-sex attraction. I'm so glad you're here. We are a room full of broken people, messy people. Here's what I would say in the middle of your struggle, do not quit struggling into God. Here's why there is something powerful and profound at the end of that struggle. Which leads to this, and then I'm done. My son or my daughter or my friend is transgender, I'm a follower of Christ. How do I converse with them without seeming to be judgmental, but also I don't want to imply with them I agree? It's a great question, right? Chances are you know someone who you can put whatever in there. Maybe your friend, maybe you're somebody is living a homosexual lifestyle, and you're like, I'm a follower of Christ, and I know what God has to say about it. How do I? First is this. Jesus says that person is my neighbor, and what does Jesus say we should do with our neighbor? Love your neighbor. They are people made in the image of God. So let's start there. He says, love your neighbor. Second is this. Okay, listen close. If my friend or whatever is something that I know is not God's design. So let's go with transgender, which is what the question had. So the trans, transgender. But they're not a follower of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, can I just say this? I'm going to say this kindly. But their transgenderism is not the biggest need they have. They need Jesus. Like, Christianity sometimes becomes an issue-based religion versus a relationship-based understanding. That Jesus wants to have a relationship with them. We want to make a point and solve everybody's issue. you got an issue. you got an issue, right? And it's like, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. (laughs) Just like you need Jesus. Let's join hands. We all need Jesus. And if they say yes to Jesus, give Jesus time as they grow in their relationship with Jesus to change their life transformationally, incarnationally. Here's what I think. I think in our culture we have erred on one of two sides and can I show you what they are? There is one generation that has erred on the side of fundamentalism and, and here's what I mean by that. So, maybe it can be depicted like a right wing fundamentalism, you know, it's like, and it's all about truth. Tell them the truth. It doesn't matter. You don't have to love them, just the truth. Ooh, you know, and it's like, and some people get hurt by that, right? But it's the truth. I know. So what happens is uh, one generation is like, that, that's harmful. That hurts. So we want to swing the pendulum over here. And no longer is it about truth. It's about tolerance. You've got to love them. It doesn't matter what you believe. If it's true for you, it's true. I love you. And it's tolerance. So one generation, truth. You've got to get the truth. You've got to get anything scare the hell out of you, literally speaking. The other's like, we'll just love you, it doesn't matter. Listen close. Both extremes, both extremes are equally dangerous and harmful. Tolerance with no truth, truth with no grace. I get asked sometimes this question, I love it, because I'll never answer it to you as long as I'm your pastor. Are you a right winger or a left winger? Like, I don't know what kind of wings you're talking about, man. I don't got wings, I got a king. And that king is full of grace and truth. And he was so full of grace and truth, he stretched his arms out because of it. Here at Grace Church, that's why we will accept people where they're at. And they come messy. Amen? You came messy, I came messy. And our desire is to accept them in their mess and lead them to the messy ayah. His name's Jesus, and he's the one who's full of grace and truth. And so we will always want to be a place where people can struggle into truth. We'll want to be a place of safety, but we will be unwavering about the truth because the truth is found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we're done. That's all we got. I'm praying that your spirit would just continue this conversation. There's so much valuable stuff for us to tease out in this. God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty in marriage. I think of just some of my young friends sitting out here. I know some of them by name. and God, someday they want to be married. I pray this picture would give them something to run into. Some of them have not met that person yet, and they're getting anxious, and God, I pray that you'd help them not to sit around and wait around, but to run into what you have for them right now. God, I pray that for some that are struggling, I'm looking out here and some are struggling because their partner's not with them, and I just so love them and glad they're here. And God, it's hard. Give them grace. God, others, I I, I think, are, are sitting here and they got friends that are struggling and they're not sure how to talk to them. I pray that you give them wisdom. But God, our culture is just screaming a ton of things. I pray that our dial would be dialed in really precisely to what you have to say over and above what all the noise is about. And that we would trust you because you loved us enough to die for us, want what's best for us. You know more than we do. And so therefore, we're going to say yes to you and follow you and give you the authority in our life. Thanks for loving us. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name.